Okay, good morning, Bokhar Tzav. It's wonderful to see everybody. So, we're on a journey together. We're uh, around the yard side of our sacks. We're taking a few moments every week to learn some of his thoughts in different units, and different ideas. So, last, uh, the last two weeks we looked at the notion of faith as a protest. That was two weeks ago. We looked at science and religion last week. And this week we're going to look at something which is less about a question from the outside, but rather a question from the inside. Those last, the last two weeks were essentially questions posed. The question of evil, the question of science and contradictions and Darwinian evolutionary theory. But this week we're going to look at from the inside, a question from the inside. And this question starts in a very um, innocuous place. It's a place where we've read this all the time. We don't even think about this. It's so obvious to us. And there's a reason why we don't think about it. Let's explore why that is. We are at the beginning of Parshas Nitzavim, which we just came, we came across just before we, we, we went, entered into Rosh Hashanah this year. We are told, you're all standing in front of Hashem, Roshechem, Shetechem, Keziknechem, Shotrechem, Kolish Israel, the whole whole nation, top to bottom, breadth and depth. Every strata of society. Why are you in front of Hashem? This is to ensure that you're part of the covenant that I'm making with you. Fantastic. So this, that, that covenant makes a lot of sense. And so we would imagine that that covenant would govern, govern all the people who are there. The question that arises is, is, the, is, is in the next few psukim, where it says in Pasuk it's not just with you. The covenant is made not just with you, but with everybody else who's not here too. Is also included in this covenant. That's the that that is the what Hashem says. Now we read this, we know this, we talk about this, we talk about transgenerational ideas, and this is a covenant which seems to span all of Jewish history. That's what the Torah is telling us. And the question is, how does that work? Based on what principle, what mechanism, is that a viable contract? So that we can ask this in a number in a number of different ways. So the the, the let's just try to try to uh, try to uh, sort of draw this out as as far as we can. There, there is a notion that you are able to do certain things on behalf of another person when they don't know about it. So, for instance, let's say I were to do something on your behalf, and that, that, uh, that, idea, that, that action, that acquisition, would be in your benefit. Uh, is that a valid transaction? The answer is yes. That's what's called zachin la'adam shalabafanov. You are able to do something which is to the merit, to the benefit of another person, when not in their presence, a halakhic concept. But the Gemara does say at the same time, in the same breath, But you cannot create a contract or an obligation without their consent. I can't go and, and make you obligated to invest, to pay, to do, when it's not necessarily in your best interest. That's something you need to make the choice about. So the question then arises, this is the question raised by an individual by the name of Rav Yitzhak Arama. And his Pirush on the Torah is called what? Does anybody know what Rav Yitzhak Arama's commentary on the Torah is? It's less like Yitzchak. It's a very long commentary. Most people are not as adept with going through it because it's not pithy. It's not short. It's not nice little one-liners and bumper stickers. It's deep thought on the Torah. Writing in the late 1400s, Rav Yitzhak Arama asks the following question. And here's the beginning. Again, this, this essay is column after column. Here's the question section of it in source 3 where he says Rav Yitzhak Arama 
You can't bequeath a responsibility. You can't give it to your children. In a way that they don't have the choice to reject it. When they arrive at age, at age of maturity, at age of responsibility, they should have the wherewithal to be able to say, I didn't accept what father, what mother I'm contractually agreed to. Whether it be explicitly or implicitly, not bodily, not spiritually, a person cannot bequeath a responsibility to their children. They can set them up for the best opportunities and best choice making, but we as parents certainly know that there's no guarantees when it comes to, to bringing up our children the choices they will make. So how is it possible for us to get into a contract with the Rebona Shalala and Hashem to tell us that all our children here on inwards are going to be part and subject to the same contract? That's, that, that's the question that he asks. Very strong question. Very strong question. Why, 3,000 years later, do we have the same responsibilities that our great-great-grandparents had when they made this contractual agreement? Very basic question. It's a question which really actually is so significant it's not just a question about the technical what and hows, but it's more a question of the who. The question is, who are we? Why are we? Why are we Jewish? That's really what the question is. It's a very essential question to, to, uh, to, to, to ask. So now, fa famously speaking, there are many answers to this question. Many, there are many suggestions. One is famously known in the Medrash. The Medrash has different iterations of this, but the most explicit place is the Tanchum at the beginning of Parshish Nitzavim. And the Tanchumah says the following. This is an answer which I'm sure we've, we've heard. And here's what it says in source form. The Rishon Tanchumah says, to that In order that you're established to him as a people, Hashem says, I'm not going to renege upon the contract that I made with you, with your fathers. All the souls were, in fact, there. Yes, they did not yet have the, we'll call it, the platform, the bodily platform to, to house all those neshamas yet. That's why it doesn't say standing. They weren't standing. They were present. That's what's being said in the Medrash over here. So the Medrash is answering this question by essentially saying that every single future neshama that was going to enter into the world and be part of the Jewish people were, were in fact there. So therefore, you ask the question, how can we bequeath the responsibility and obligation of identity to our children? The answer is, we didn't. They were all there. We, our souls, were there as well. Yes, can we, can we remember it? Technically speaking, actually, interestingly enough, it's worthwhile noting, that when, it, when you come across sometimes a fabulous insight into Judaism, perhaps a question you had for years and decades even, and sometimes when you, when you, when you have that epiphany and that awareness, you could, if, you if you examine that feeling, sometimes that feeling isn't the feeling of having an idea, but more of actually coming back, returning to an idea that was originally part of you. If you, if you, ever, if you ever sort of examine that experience, that epiphany to a greater degree, there's an element of return. There's an element of, of, of coming back to something which was real to you beforehand. And that, that may relate to this, uh, this notion as well that the Medrash is describing. So this is how, this is how the Medrash answered, and many of us are very comfortable with this, uh, with this idea. 
However, is it all right if I can ask that uh, that uh, somebody, if there's an extra source, source sheet for, for, for Mrs. Cohen, who's well, welcome back from Israel? This came from the plane. Oh, wonderful. Right, right, right from, right from Israel. It's lovely to have you back in Mazal Tov on the special Smachos. Oh, there we go. So, uh, so he, has, he, has, he, has, he has the problem. So Rav Aramak considers this, and he entertains this Medrash and many other Midrashim as an example. Halachically speaking, halachically speaking, if you go to the Gomorrah in Shavuos, it's so interesting. Actually, I asked the Kotzka Rebbe when he was a child. When he was a little boy, so somebody was trying to, you know, play with him and said to him, so, so Yingle, he says, what Gomorrah talks about Rosh Hashanah? He says, Rosh Hashanah. What Gomorrah talks about a little more difficult? So Sukkah, Sukkah. What Gomorrah talks about Yom Kippur? A little more tricky? Yuma. What Gomorrah talks about Pesach? Psachim. What Gomorrah talks about Shavuos? So he says, Shavuos. He says, ah, I, told, I, he says, I caught you out. Because the Gomorrah in Shavuos doesn't talk about Shavuos. What does it talk about? Oaths. So, so, so the Kotzkrebis says on Chof Beis, on the Beis, it says that if a person takes a Shvua to, to go against what is in the Torah, then a person, that Shvua is not Chal, it's illegitimate. Why? Because the Gemara says, Mush made me Har Sinai. That's the, 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 the terminology of the Gemara. The person is already engaged in a prior oath, right? It's like signing a contract upon a contract. So I already have the contract in place. So the Kotzka Rebbe says, as a little boy, see it says, Mushma Vahamid Vaharsinai. That's, that's the, by the way, that's what the Medrash is saying. That's another version of this, what this Tanchum is saying, but that's the Alachic version of it. That we were Mushma Vahamid, right? We were there. Something about that contract is still extant. So Rav Aramas says, but that doesn't work. It's not good enough. He has listened to his words in the next source. We're going to go through this, the, the, the struggle that Rav Aramas goes through. So the following, Aval Adayin, Yesh Bamaram Zain, source 5, Iyun Rav. There's a lot to think about. Lodas, It's not enough to tell me that the soul received and accepted this because that's not the full personality of the human being. The human being is composite of a soul and a body. And so therefore to, 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 to say that the soul came into contract is essentially not enough to contractually require the body to be in the same. The way the, way the Gomorrah puts it, the, the, sort of the metaphor the Gomorrah and Sanhedrin and Perichelic uses is the following. So imagine that you had a, a blind fellow and, a, and a, uh, um, a handicapped fellow. And they both want to get, get up to no good, but they don't have the ability to be able to do this because the blind fellow can't find anything to steal, steal and the handicapped fellow can't get there to steal it. So what they do is they make a deal where the, the, the fellow who, who is lame has upon his shoulders, we discussed this on Wednesdays, right, Rosemary, we, 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 this, is, this is what we talked about when we were learning Ramchal together, is, um, is so, so the, the blind fellow puts the person who is lame upon his shoulders, and, the, and, uh, and so the lame person uses his eyesight to, and, and his hands to direct the blind person to go under the apple tree of the, his neighbor's orchard to take off the apples and to steal the apples. So anyway, so the apples disappear, they, they, they share, they, they, they sell their, their, uh, their hoard of, of apples, and they're caught by the police. And so they come to trial, and, and in court, the blind man gets up and says, Your Honor, how could I possibly be held responsible for, for stealing? I, I, I couldn't find the tree. And then the lame person says, How could I possibly, Your Honor, how could I possibly, because I couldn't get to the tree. So, so it sounds like a very good, a, a good response. The Gemara says, so what the judge does is he puts the lame person on the shoulders of the, of the, of the, of the blind person, and then they beat them together. <laughs> So that's what, that's, that's what happens is the body and the, good, and, the, and the soul come together in this world 
and then they do all kinds of things for the good and the bad. And at the end of the day, they each make excuses. Well, I couldn't do it because I was deficient in this way. I was deficient of a body. I was deficient of a will. And so, Akash Baruch says, I'm going to put you back together in order to, to exact punishment and, or, or reward. Very, very, very worthwhile thinking about what, what, what Rav Aramai is essentially saying is it's not enough to have one of the entities or one of the components because the human being is in fact both the body and the soul. And that we live in this world in such a, in such a, in such a form. So it's not enough to be able to say that, that this is the answer. That's what, that's what he asks in rejection of this, this, or not rejection, but in saying that this is not sufficient to be able to contractually require us to be part of this. So this is, this is the question that he has. Now, by the way, this is an extremely long essay, as every paragraph in the Akedah Sislak is. If you want to, this is the reason why you don't hear people quoting it, because people don't have the patience or gumption to learn the Akedah Sislak and the profundity of his, of his teachings. But it's worthwhile. So here, let me, let, 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 let's, let's take a step backwards. So Rav Sachs argues the following. This, this, is, this is where Rav Sachs comes in. This is to be found in a letter in the scroll. I highly recommend this. Is, we're going to do a quick summary of four chapters together in, in, in terms of trying to understand Jewish identity. It has another name. This book is also called Radical Then, Radical Now, the English version. This is the American version. Is the letter in the scroll. Fine. So let's, let's try to uh, uh, approach this. So Rav Sachs makes the following observation. And this, uh, this is a, a, such a beautiful observation. And that is that right now, today, that's not a question that we're asking so much, right? Why is it that we, we, when, we, when we read Pashas Nitzavim, that's not the question which jumps out at us. In fact, he pointed out that the last time before the, the Rav Yitzhak Arama asks this question was more than a thousand years that anybody asked this question on Pashas Nitzavim, on this intergenerational contract. And he said, why is that? He pointed out that there were actually four times in history that this question was asked. By, by different people at various times. And here's his argument. They were all asked at times of cataclysmic events in Jewish history. He goes back all the way to the beginning, and the first event that he identifies is the destruction of Churban Bayes Rishon, the destruction of Bayes Rishon. So we have a recording over there that Yechezkel Anavi, who's living at the time, he is the prophet in exile, he's the younger colleague of Yirmiyahu Anavi. Yirmiyahu Anavi lives in Israel, Yechezkel lives in the diaspora. He was exiled already about a, about. Um, a decade plus earlier, he was one of the earlier iterations of, of exile under Nebuchadnezzar, when under the Melech Yoyakim, Yirmiyahu continued to stay in the land of Israel and then ensued to, to witness Yechonia and Zedekiah, the last two kings of Israel. But under the goddess Yechonia was when Yechezkel, like Mordechai's family, also came to, to Babylon. And he records that a, a group of people come to him with a terrifying question in Perak Chaf of Perak Yechezkel. And the question is, is where as following, it's worthwhile reading the first 31 Sukkim of the Perak to understand how Yechezkel is revolved by this, by this uh, question. But the question essentially is the following, and here's what he says. Source 7. V'haloi al ruchachem, that which is upon your spirit, l'hoyoi loi siyeh, will never come to be, says Yechezkel. Ashiratem amrim, that your claim is, as a group of elders who are Babylonian Jews, come to him and say, it will never be. We will be like the nations to serve stick and stone. What are they doing? Why are these elders coming to Yechezkel? The reason they're asking is because the, the whole premise of Hashem choosing us as a nation seems to have been undermined by the events that are unfolding as they look to the south. And they see the chosen people becoming unchosen. And they question, is it really therefore still us? Is this really still the same thing when it's of him? Is that referring to us anymore? That was what the people at times of Yechezkel were asking. Is it real anymore? That was the first time this question was asked. 
Then we fast forward a number of centuries, and the question was asked once again at another cataclysmic event. And that was the destruction of the second bias, and followed by the Hadrianic persecutions a short few decades later on. The Gomorrah records this, because remember, now we're no longer in Novi. Navu is closed. Now the recording of these conversations at the times of the sages. And the Gomorrah records a few examples of this. So as an example, the Gomorrah about Basar Daf Samachom is talking about the sugyas at the very end of this parak of Cheska Sabatim here. He's talking about the sugyas of Zecher Lechorban. And the Gomorrah then descri- describes, Umiyam This refers ostensibly to the Hadrianic persecutions in the time that the Roman Empire is decreeing all these kinds of things upon us. Doesn't allow us to even get in to have Shavuah Ben, whether that refers to Shalom Zacher, but most likely refers to um, to, to refers to also Brismilov Amrile Neishua Ben. Dinhu, it is it, the logic would dictate By rights, says the Gemara, the people living at this time, we should not get married, we should not have children, and we should allow the legacy of Abraham to dissipate naturally. That was what they said. Meaning it is so, it, it is so antithetical to the, the, what we've been told, what we've been telling our children, the idea of who we are, that really at this point in time it should just peter away. So saying another, another example, this is the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Perichelek, Kufay Amor Aleph, the Gemara says, Shmuel Amar, Boa Boa Asara Bnei Adam, V'yosh Lefanov, Amru Lohen, Chazru B'Tshuva. So he turned to ten, ten people and he said, Do Tshuva. He says, Amru Lohi, Evet Shomachu Rabba V'yishu Shagir Shabayla, Klum Yesh Lozeh Alzeh Klum. Husband divorces a wife, a servant is, a servant is, is, uh, is, uh, is expelled by the, the master. Is there any relationship that's to be had afterwards? What are they saying? This is the metaphor, Right? Akash Baruch kicked us out. Akash Baruch says no goodbye. That's what, was, what happened at the, at the Khorban Bayas Shani. And so what? We have, we have responsibilities to, towards him? He, he kicked us out. He said there's no more responsibilities. So how, how could there be? Are we really still contractually bound by the same, by the same contracts that, that, that happened originally? The same question, now worded differently at the times of the Khorban Bayas. Argues or Asaks, the third time this question comes up in Jewish history as the time of the Spanish expulsion. And yes, it, it actually does. Have, it shows its head a few times, a little bit here and there. As an example, the, the Rambam is contacted by the Jews of Yemen, the Jews of Teman, where they are going through a terrible forced conversion under the hands of a, um, of a, of a fundamentalist group of, of, of uh, Muslim leadership. Generally speaking, if you read the Jews, and I did a course, two courses of this in, in Jewish history when I was in university, the Jews under Islam, generally speaking, the more egalitarian the Islamic society was, the better it was for Jews, the more fundamentalists, which kept on going in ebbs and flows in Morocco, in Yemen, in Iran. Gen- the same general pattern happened. You had you know, a more Haredi group of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of Muslims who take over, and then the Jews suffered under, under them, and they went back to you know, sort of fundamentalist principles. And then when things were a little more laissez-faire, that's when the Jews actually succeeded. So the same thing happened in Yemen. At this particular time, there was a forced conversion. And in fact, one of the, the forced, uh, the forced uh, the conversions was a son of a rabbi who became a missionary to, to convert the Jews. It was a terrible time. And they wrote to the Rambam asking, what should we do? And, uh, and the, Rambam, the Rambam responded to them in a famous, what's called, we know today is called the Igeres Teman. He wrote to response to them. And it was about the false messiahs of the time. They were, they were afflicted by the Rambam. says, just to reverse for a second in the notes, because this is a relevant in between stage in source six, he says, When a person is a guarantor for another, says the Rambam to the to the Jews of Yemen. 
And uh, he says, Avoidienu Shekol Misha Omad Al Harsina Shehema Aminim Bedevuas Moshe Rabbeinu Bechol Mashebo Al Yodai. When a pearl, we know that we accepted what was said at Har Sinai, like an orev, like a guarantor. The Ramam says it's, it's, it's not breakable, this contract. We will always be Hashem's chosen people, no matter what society is telling us, or no matter the torch that society is bringing upon us. So already we start seeing, already at the beginning of the medieval ages, there are moments where this, sort of this, this, this idea is already starting to fester, where people are questioning us, and you can understand why the Jews of Yemen we're questioning us at this point in time. But it really came into its full-blown experience over here at the time, the end of the 1400s. Now, the reason why this is, this is true is because already at the end of the 1300s, there were a number of forced conversions in Spain. The Jews, by the way, in Spain, we're talking about the Golden Era. While there was persecutions of the Crusades in Europe under Christian rule, and there were uh, the, uh, under the Jews in Spain, first under the Muslims and then under the, the Christians, lived a very blessed life. They were able to, to exceed and enter into society in all realms whether it be in the, re in the realms of academia, philosophy, whether it be professions. Jews were, were generally successful in Spain. It's called the golden, the golden Era. Towards the end of the 1300s, um, more fundamentalist Christians at this point in time, the Dominican friars came in and had a number of forced conversions of Jews. And there were swaths, thousands of Jews who were forced to convert to Christianity, at which point they, they essentially were given rights as Christians in society. During the course of the 1400s, that was called into question because now there was a problem with this whole business. On the one hand, we converted all these Jews to be, to be Christ Christians, but now they're succeeding because they have no upper glass ceiling anymore. So now the Christian neighbors became ex exceedingly even more um, jealous of what was going on. And then they instituted the Inquisition. Most people think it was, Inquisition was about the Jews. It was actually about the conversos. The people who were forced to be, in, uh, to, to be tortured to false admissions were Christian Jews, Jews who had been forced to, to convert to Christianity. And this was led to, the, to finally to the breaking point where they managed to torture out false, uh, false admissions from a number of Jews, that the Jews were out to, 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 to destroy their Messiah. And, um, and once the war effort against the Muslims in the south, in the, in the southern area of the Iberian Peninsula, was, finish, was finishing based on Jewish money, which they were confiscating through the conversos, um, they, um, they were the, at, at the point that there was a cleansing of the Muslims in the south, the last strongholds of the Muslims of the Moors in the south, at that point in time, there was an edict issued um, in, in 1492 to, to expel all the Jews of Spain. It was uh, They were given... About three to four months, it was in, uh, on Tishabab was the time that it was slated. And of course, you know, that time nobody could get rid of their assets, of course. So that was, a, of course, a great boon for the, this, um, the Spanish government and for the Jewish neighbors. Um, and so the, this, this is what happened in 1492. At such a point in time, the leaders of the time were people on, by the name of one of the great Spanish was, um, a great Spanish, Spanish rabbonim leaders was Rabbi Yisak Aramah. He lived till 1495. You understand when he's asking this question, the parasha, he's not asking a theoretical question, says Rabbi Sachs. Similarly, when you, uh, one of his contemporaries who asks the same question at the beginning of the parasha, him, is a person by the name of Don Yitzhak Abarbanel, who was the financier of the Spanish government, who was hired after he was kicked out of Portugal by being one of the highest ministers there was now hired to, uh, as being one, he was the second most wealthy and important Jew in all of Spain. He was given the opportunity of converting and maintaining his assets, which his senior rabbi did, Rabbi Isaac Senor, 
did do that. He converted to Christianity to maintain his assets. The Avarinel refused to, but tried to negotiate with Isabella and Ferdinand unsuccessfully, so an escape to Europe, upon which he wrote his Pirush Antanach while he was on the run. It should be a, a, an important Mechaev to us to think about how he wrote his Pirush. But nonetheless, this is the Avarinel. They asked the same question because it's not a theoretical question. The way that it's, it's asked in the, the Abarbanel, just not asked, but he, his reflections. You want to just see the pain of the Abarbanel, source 10. This is the Abarbanel's commentary on the, on Haggadah, uh, the Haggadah Shol Pesach. It's on Hallel. And he says, commenting on the words in Hallel that we say, um, I believed while I'm speaking, I am very much afflicted, as Dabra Melech says. I said in my, in my haste, every human being is false, is deceiving. What is that referring to, says Ababa Bernal? You can read the first section, but I'm just going to jump to the, to kick to, uh, cut to the chase. In the, the last, widest line here. This is the original print. Sorry. What does this mean in source 10? The, for the last, widest line, the beginning of the lane. line. Ratzel Omar. This means to say, Kol hanavim shenibu al ni'ilasi upeshuasi. All the prophets who talked about our redemption were false. The, the time has passed. And we're still in this dark place. Moshe Rabbeinu was false in his prophecy about what he said that there'll be an end. Isaiah was false. In his prophet, uh, prophecies of comfort. Kozov Yirmiyahu v'yecheskel b'nevuah sayhem. I mean, Jeremiah and Ezekiel were false in their prophecies. Zechenshar and Avim kulam kol adam kozev. We in the lengthy exile were the ones that David Melech was saying that Aniyamarti b'chavsi. In my haste in the exile, I said kol adam kozev. Who's that referring to? Says the Abarbanel. All the prophets. That's what we felt like in the darkest of hours. There's going to come a time when the Geula is going to come at, and we're going to embarrassedly look back at those moments of weakness where we said this. That's what the Pasuk means, says the Abba Brunel. In my haste I said this. I'm believing what I'm saying, this terrible statement. That perhaps even all the prophets are false. That's the experience of a person living through this absolute hell, this absolute unimaginable experience. This, 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 this was one of the greatest impacts upon world Jewry in, in Jewish history. More than any other, the, the expulsion of, of Spanish Jewry. It changed in the shape of generations, this, this experience. And finally, of course, Ralph Sachs points out, is the fourth time this question has been asked, is in our, genera- our most recent generations at the times of the Holocaust, an example of one example uh, of excerpt, this is Elie Wiesel in a 1967 paper in a, in a forum called Jewish Values in the Post-Holocaust Future. The Jewish people entered into a covenant with God. We were, we were to protect his Torah, and he in turn assumed responsibility for the Jewish pre- Israel's presence in the world. When it seems for the first time in history, this very covenant is broken. That's what Elie Wiesel's re- re- initial reflection. Now, he went through his own journey in terms of his journey of understanding the Holocaust. But this is what his reflection is, and many were in the same camp as his. Rai Sachs points out that he's incorrect in one point, and that is this is not the first time in Jewish history that this question was brought into call, brought, brought to the forum, because it was already brought in by the Beis Amin, the Churban Bayez Rishon, the Churban Bayez Shani, the Spanish Inquisition, and now finally the Holocaust. 
So Ross actually is putting out the, the context of this question. Now that we have the context, now we have to answer it. <laughs> okay, so now the stakes are high. But we understand why this question came into, came into context in these, in these particular times. So Rav Aramas struggles with this question, as, as we, we should all do, we really should all do, is how is it that we are obligated by the decision or the contract made by our parents? So the Akedas Yitzhak has his own answer. Rabbi Rabbi has his own answer. We'll explore both of them and we'll see the shortcomings of each of the answers because they themselves struggled with their answers. Right, the Akedas Yitzhak says in Source 12, again, this is a very small excerpt of a much longer essay. This is not the tip, typical type of oath that you take where you accept a contract. It's not dependent on, we will call it the, the gravitas of that oath. It is actually a natural phenomenon in our character. This shvur isn't about what we said we'd do, what we said we wouldn't do, because we can't pass that on. This is, if you're to examine the DNA of the Jewish person, part of our actual identity is being Jewish, and we cannot run away from this. So he says at the end of the... At the end of this paragraph, the third last line, the call there, We are not able to escape our God and His commandments and His statutes. A contract on earth presupposes that I'm making a choice about it. He says, we're not making a choice. It is. If you look into our DNA, our spiritual DNA, we are Jewish. There's no way to escape that. That's what's being told to us over here. It's not about saying, yes, God, thank you very much, or no, thank you very much. This is, I'm telling you something that you are unique about. He goes on further to suggest, this is such a brilliant observation. The Gemara in Shabbos on Pei Chesam and Arav tells us that there's a, there, there was a conversation had at Har Sinai where it says, the nation of Israel stood at the bottom of the, the, of the mountain. The Gemara comments, that's a very strange word, way to describe the foot of the mountain. But Tachtis sounds like underneath the mountain. So the Gemara says, yes, actually, technically speaking, they did stand underneath the mountain as God elevated the mountain above their heads and says, if you don't accept it, shum to you, The Gemara says, wait a second, what do I rabbi The Gemara says, that doesn't work. If you, may, if you sign a contract with a gun to your head, and you're, you're not bound by that contract. You can claim that you, you had no free will. So the Gemara says, good point. The Gemara says, that's why they accepted the times of Mordechai and Esther. Very strange, because that's a thousand years later. So what happened in between? Why were they held responsible for the destruction of the first base of English if they weren't really responsible for this, for this contract? Says Rav Arama, just a brilliant reading. It's a completely different reading of the Gemara. Take a look at the, in the next paragraph. Just such a beautiful thing. Um, we're, we're starting halfway through the paragraph because I summarized the first half. By the, it's five lines in where the period is, where the full stop is. Not only is he saying the children aren't bound on the contract, he's saying the parents, the people who accepted it aren't bound on the contract because they had a gun to their head, they had a mountain over their heads, right? So that, 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 that's the question the Gemara is asking. It's the same question we're asking, he asks. He says, well, he saw a tshuva, kvar kibloa b'meyei Mordechai. Yeretzeh, what does it mean they accepted the times of Purim? Yeretzeh, shalami koyach ha-shuvua hi omdu aleo. It's not because of what they said at Har Sinai, that they, they, they're, they're Jewish. That's not nothing to do with it. Ki ima meyei rech chiyusam shi yuchumra yaseira haimenu. 
It is actually part of their very being, the fabric of their being, which is much more significant than any choice they ever made. And they realized at the time when genocide was facing them at the hands of, of Haman that it wasn't about choice, it was about being. That's what, that's what it ultimately... Why is Mordechai and Esther the time? They realized this. Because that's when they were facing absolute annihilation. And they realized that you can't escape being Jewish. <laughs> it is. It's not a choice. That's what, that's what Rav Arba says. And you can understand how he's in transcribing, he's interpolating this to Spanish Jewry. You understand what he's saying now? The Ababanel also struggles with the same concept. The Ababanel in the next, the next uh, comment. The Ababanel was, oh, yeah. How does that answer? The, I understand you are, but how does that answer what happened in Palestine? Oh, it's a good question. So, so what he's saying is the Kafalem Harkigigis is essentially saying that it's what Hashem was saying is what, not that I'm waiting for you to answer. I'm actually now changing your DNA. I'm changing who you are. That's what's happening at Har Sinai. That's inescapable. That's inescapable. We'll see the Barbanel's way dealing with this. Wait, wait, one second. So the Barbanel says the following. He has a different perspective. The Barbanel says like this. It is true, I cannot, I cannot bequeath to my children a responsibility. Right? I can't, I can't give you a responsibility or a choice I made. But I can give you a debt. <laughs> this is unfortunately all too often. A parent can be a very uh, can, can unfortunately not live a very clear, you know, carefully laid out financial life, and then leave terrible debts upon his estate, and the children left to hold that. Right? That that's that's true. That's my simple young. Says that says that Barbanel. Take a look at the in, in source thirteen. If you take a loan from your friends. Your children are going to have to, the estate is going to have to pay that debt back. He says, So the same way you have to pay back the debt of your, your parents assumed. And he goes on to say, we're just going to skip down four lines to where the period is. Hashem acquired us. Why did he acquire us? Because we should have died in Egypt as, as substrata Egyptian slaves. And therefore, we are only alive because he extracted us. And therefore, we are servants to God. So he saved our bodies in Egypt and our souls at Sinai. Right? He gave, therefore, he has full acquisition and rights to us. We are essentially eternally on lean, or there is a lean upon us because of what he did. Yes, the debt is going to go intergenerationally because this is a debt, a debt of life, a debt of spiritual and physical life which continues to generations. Now, the Abarbanel and Rav Arama were still struggling with this. And in fact, the Abarbanel does reject his own answer later on. He'll not reject, but he comes back to a more basic answer. And this is the first time this question was answered. 
Who answered this question the first? The first time I was asked. Who asked it first? The Jews of the times of Yechezkel. The destruction of the best by Zushan. What did Yechezkel tell them? Go ahead, let's go back to those Pesukim in Yechezkel. The Pesuk says, we, we looked at Pesuk Lamed Beis in source 14. Lamed Gimel is, Chayanin um Hashem, Im loy b'yad chazakov, Yisrael netzuyov, Achem ekeshufucho, Im loy chalechem. Hashem says, I'm going to rule over you by hook or by crook. Whether you like it or not, I'm going to rule over you. What does that mean? Says the Abarbanel, read this in the milieu of the late 1400s and the beginning of the 1500s, understand the suffering they're going through. Says the Barbanel in source 15, This is a, a terrifying prophecy that Yechezkel is saying. This is his commentary on Yechezkel. We see this terrible exile that we are at the hands of Christianity. Clearly, this nevuah of Yechezkel is relating more to Christianity than to Babylonian history. There are Jews who are trying to be non-Jewish to escape the terrible persecution that is upon their doorstep. And he says, These thoughts will never be. You'll never succeed in assimilating away from this. This is the second pasuk. This is what Hashem is saying. By my oath. What does that mean? Hashem says, I'm going to be your king. To the Jews who still held on despite the torture. He's talking to the Jews of the Christian lands. What is the outstretched arm to the Jews under Islam? And to those who converted to whatever religion it was that was forcing them, who tried to escape the religion under unbelievable pressures, Hashem says, I'm still your God, even through anger. And that's what, that's what the Barbanel says. You just understand what he's saying. He's saying, Yechezkel is right whether we like it or not. Whether we want to, whether we choose, whether we don't choose. And you know what? That Bible knows right because no Jew who converted really succeeded in being fully, uh, escape, escaping fully the shadow of, that, of what they were trying to escape. That is what that Bible knows suggests. Coming back to this, which is ultimately it is an inescapable reality. So then kind of, the, the question is, is that if that's the case, there are sex says this, this really is the truth. But if that's the case, there's, 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 there's two points that, 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 are, that are missing. Point number one is that, unfortunately, it's a very dire perspective. It's a very dire and sad perspective. That means to say that we don't really have a part in this whole business. We really, whether we like it or not, inescapably, we're Jewish. That's, not, that's, that's, that's question number one he has on that, Rabbanel. But now the question number two is, is that today it doesn't seem to be working as much. Because our Rabbanel is talking about when Jews faced persecution. But what about when in today, in today's world, one in four Jews outside of orthodoxy is choosing to remain with their Jewish identity. 75% of Jews are marrying out outside of orthodoxy, which means that the Arbalbanel's answer is not necessarily Jews are disappearing. 
Jews are disappearing at a rate, uh, hemorrhaging away right now as we speak, at a rate which is inconceivable. This is a responsibility that our Sachs felt ter- terribly upon his shoulders. One of the mainstays of his initial campaign as chief rabbi, as he began the, 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 uh, as assumed the role of chief rabbi in 1991, was talking about this question about the Jews we're losing every single day. So what it means to say is that this question of identity, this answer is not sufficient even to, to answer those who are not moving away from persecution, but moving away towards love, towards a society which has finally opened up its doors fully towards us. How do we, how do we answer that? Unfortunately, unfortunately, in a society that we live, the people who are disappearing are so far, and so every waiting generation and marriage and next step, it's getting harder and harder to find those people. And yes, there will be, always be anti-Semitism, but we're, we're losing the battle. That's what our sex is saying. So we need, what he's saying is, I'd like to fine-tune an answer which, is a little, which, which relates a little more to the generation we're in. Hang on one second, I want to get, because we have a, t- a tremendous, I, I would like to just uh, focus this, uh, this idea. So Rabbi Sachs t- turns to the following, he says a remarkable idea. He was in Cambridge as an undergraduate. He went to a, a non-Jewish school, to Cambridge, Cambridge in the 1960s. This was the era of rejecting the old, where everything which couldn't be conscribed to facts and ideas was, uh, had been, um, was not in fashion, was not in vogue. It was a generation where the, the youth knew more than the, the elder generation. And he started reading, he started falling into philosophy. And philosophy, of course, in a very arrogant way to a large degree, rejects generally to, to a large degree um, religious dogma. However, while in the middle of this, while in the middle of this whole experience, there came an event in the summer of 1967 when he was an undergraduate, which changed everything for him. And changed it, changed it for a lot of people. And that was that there was the Egyptian closing the Straits of Tehran. And suddenly there became a discussion about the existence of the nation of Israel. And he had never experienced the, or thought about the Holocaust as many British and other, otherwise Jews around the world had never thought about it. And suddenly now there were collections. All these Jews raced to the small shul on campus. And Jews were going about, he was collecting money to send to Israel. And the idea of an existential crisis for the first time in history, in his life, suddenly became a real thing. Were we going to survive? And people he had never thought about because Israelis, he never really visited Israel once. He had no intention of of living there. He didn't know any particular Israelis as friends. But suddenly he felt this sense of responsibility for something bigger than him. And all these Jews felt the same thing. And around the world, everybody was tied to these radio sets, listening to what was happening blow by blow in the most miraculous battle in modern history, which unfolded in six days, the reuniting of Jerusalem, the tripling of the size and the territory of the land of Israel. In this short span of time, the reversal upon the enemies. It was a remarkable thing. And then he says, and then life went back to normal after that. And he said it couldn't go back to normal after that. And he realized that there was something more about being a Jew than just what the philosophies and what you could think and you could measure and you could understand through logic. And he started this experience where he realized there was something special about being a Jew. Something which was activated in that moment, which he never experienced before. And this became his, the beginning of his journey. And he describes that along his journey, we're going to discuss a little bit more perhaps next week about the notion of, of interconnectedness. That'll be the topic next week as, as the Jewish nation as a whole. But in terms of Jewish identity, he said he felt he met people along the way 
who, uh, who also were also incredulous about this notion of what it means to be a Jew. And he quotes a few people, and this is before it became popular to quote these people. I believe Ross Sachs was the, one of the individuals who made it popular to quote these, the, these individuals. He first quotes Blaise Pascal, uh, a, a physicist, a thinker, a philosopher par excellence. And at the age of 30, he decided to, uh, to, to step back from, from science. And he actually spent time thinking about religion. He actually died pretty young. If you look at his years, 1623 to 1662, he wasn't, didn't live an extraordinarily long life. But the last decade of his life or so, he spent philosophizing on religion. And in it, he talks about the Jews, and here's what he says. The second paragraph in Source 16, This people is not eminent solely by their antiquity, but also singular by their duration, which has always continued from their origin till now. For whereas the nations of Greece and Italy, um, Lesimedon uh, of Athens and of Rome, and others who came along after have long since perished. These ever remain, and in spite of the endeavors of many powerful kings who have a hundred times tried to destroy them, as their historians testify, and as it is easy to conjecture from the na natural order of things during so long a space of years, they have nevertheless been preserved. That's, that's Pascal looking at this. Pascal famously had his wager about why it's, it's much more worthwhile believing, even just as a, as a, as a, from the stake of probability. Ah, oh, that was it. Um, his greatest contribution was the theory of probability, right, which we use today on everything we do. Later on, this is in the 1600s, Leo Tol Tolstoy, after writing Anna Karenina, one, one of the greatest writers from the, from the eastern side of, of Europe and Asia, um, actually himself retired and he, he founded the love of his life, who was somebody who helped him publish and settled down to a much simpler life. He says in contemplation, he says, the Jew is the emblem of eternity. He whom neither slaughter nor torture of a thousand years could destroy. He whom neither fire nor sword nor inquisition was able to wipe off the face of the earth. He who was the first to produce the oracles of God. He who has been so long the guardian of prophecy and has transmitted it to the rest of the world. Such a nation cannot be destroyed. The Jew is as everlasting as eternity itself. And finally, in Nikolai Berdyev, we looked at his works last week when we talked about science. He initially was a supporter of the Bolshevik Re Revolution. And later on in his years, he had, he, he had different perspectives. An interesting uh, Russian philosopher who says, I remember how materialist interpretation of history, when I attempted in my youth to verify by applying it to the destinies of people, broke down in the case of the Jews, where destiny seemed absolutely inexplicable from the materialistic standpoint. Its survival was a mysterious and wonderful phenomenon, demonstrating that the life of this people is governed by a special predetermination transcending the processes of adaption expounded by materialistic interpretation of history. The survival of the Jews, their resistance to the destruction, their endurance under absolute peculiar conditions and fateful role played by them in history. All these points to the particular and the mysterious foundations of their destiny. So what he's saying is that it is clear that from the, the perspective of outside thinkers who really contemplated the Jewish people, there is something special about them. And at that moment in time, during the Six-Day War, Rabbi Sachs himself came to the realization that there is something special about these people. What's special about these people? Why is this identity something which was given to us, but we really is us? Why is it something which is triggered upon these moments in history where suddenly we realize that we're special? Rabbi Sachs uses the following example, and this is why the book is called as it is in the American version, which is called The Letter and the Scroll. The Zohar tells us, there's in a number of places, but in Shira Shirim, it, it talks about how there is Al Dasolkin Asvon, the Shisin Riboy Kuchushpun Shiftan di Yisrael, the Inon Tresar. 
So the, 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 the Zara is talking about the idea that the Torah itself has 600,000 letters. Now, interesting questions is for the, for, for the sake of posterity. There actually are really around 300,000 letters. There's also answers as to why that really works out. Is it parts of letters, right? Uh, an Aleph is made up of a Vav and two Yuds, as the Vilna points out. But nonetheless, the, there's a notion that there's 600,000 letters in the Torah. And the, 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 the Kabbalistically speaking, as an example, the Magali Amukos, the Baal Shem Tov talks about this. The, the, the Magali Amukos is not the Baal Shem Tov, but many uh, Hasidic and Kabbalistic thinkers say, Shekain Moshe Rabbeinu Kolu, Somehow this number, this magical number 600,000, relates not just to the souls of the Jews, but also to the letters in the Torah itself. So he says, listen to the metaphor of this idea. The metaphor is, that essentially is being argued over here, is that we are a letter in the scroll. Every one of us is a letter. Now here's the interesting thing about letters is that a letter by itself is inconsequential. If you have a letter by itself, you have a letter on a, on a piece of paper, even one letter means nothing. For to mean something, it needs context. It needs other letters. It needs sentences. It needs paragraphs. It needs spaces. It needs a formulation as part of the tapestry. One note in a musical symphony is meaningless. A note as part of a harmony or a melody is suddenly meaning, meaningful. Rasaks is, is saying that the, the notion of what Jewish identity is, what does the neshama of a Jew mean? It means it's part of a longer written idea, part of context. It's coming from somewhere, going to somewhere. And here's the argument he makes. This, this argument is such a profound perspective of what it means to be Jewish. This is what he calls an iconoclastic belief. It means to say it's going against the norms of what the world sees uh, is as identity. Here's what he says in Source 21. Several centuries of Western thought, beginning in the Enlightenment, have left us with the idea that when we choose how we live, we are, uh, we are on our own. Nothing in the past binds us. We are whoever and whatever we choose to be. So axiomatic is this idea to us that we are all too unaware of the intellectual history that lies behind it. We can trace some of the key moments when David Hume in the 18th century stated that one could not derive an ought from an is, or when Kant placed the concept of autonomy at the heart of the moral life, or when the 20th century existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre argued that each of us exists, uh, 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 that for each of us existence precedes essence. This long cumulative development has left us with a belief that our that identity is something that we choose, unfettered by any bonds of the past. No fact defines our obligations, no history prescribes our roles. We enter the world with a clean slate on which we can draw any self-portrait we wish. That's the notion of the world itself. That we can essentially be who we want. We can choose any orientation. We can choose any direction in life of who we are. <coughs> Against this whole, complex, uh, 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 this whole complex of ideas, Jewish life is a sustained counter-voice. To be a Jew is to know that this cannot be the full story of who I am. A melody is more than a sequence of disconnected notes. A painting is something other than a random set of brushstrokes. The part that has meaning in terms of its place within the whole so that if history has meaning, then the lives that, we, that make, us, make it up in, a, in some way to be joined to one another as characters in a narrative, figures in an unfolding drama. Without this, it would be impossible to speak about meaning. And Judaism is the insistence that history does have meaning. Therefore, each of us has significance precisely insofar as we are part of a story, an extraordinary exemplary story of a people dedicated to certain ideas. We are not free-floating atoms in an infinite space. We are letters. In a scroll. So he gives an example. This is a very famous example, but this is such a powerful example. He says, Imagine you were to walk into a library which was floor to ceiling with books, shanks in every direction, 
And, you, and so for some people, this is a dream. For some people, this is torture because where's the device, right? But imagine you, 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 you had a few hours and you could go to a library, you could read anything you wanted to. The closest, to, the closest I've ever had this, oh, to this is that if anybody ever went to the fourth floor of the library in the YU library, the Gottesman Library in YU, it's a silent floor. It says no distractions, you're not allowed to have phones, you're not allowed, that's where, you know, in, in the good day when I used to do my studying, for when I was doing my actuary exams, I would do 12-hour shifts, you know, stopping to daven and eat, and that would be it. You could just, you could just it's its own world where you could study. And it, had, it happened to be the Jewish history section was on that floor. So you could just go there and you could read. They had entire shelves of Holocaust denial, as an example. You could just see how many books are written on this, on Israel, on the history of Israel. You could just sit there and read. It was remarkable to have all this time in complete utter silence. So just imagine you're in a library 10 times that volume. And now you're, you're able to go to any book as you like, any interest, any writer as you like. You pull a book off the shelf. And it could be, let's say, that this particular book, for, for argument's sake, is, um, is the, um, let's say, the, um, a how-to on gardening. A history of gardening. And you're fascinated by this topic. And so you start reading it and you want to read more. So you can go to similar books on the same shelf in the same genre. You could be interested in this particular writer and you could go find more from this particular writer. Or if you're not, it doesn't interest you. If you're not interested in gardening, you're more interested in the history or perhaps physics. You could put the book back and the book has no demand upon you. Because you could go to another section and read another book of your interest. Because that's the notion of identity in the secular world. To see it in his own words, in the next, in the, the last section over here, second paragraph of the left-hand side. This, for the contemporary secular culture of the West, is what identity is like. We are browsers in the library. There are many different ways of living, and none exercises any particular claim on us. None of them, more than any other, defines who we are. And we can try for as long as we like, as browsers, though, we remain intact, untouched. The various lifestyles into which we enter are like books we read. They are free to, free to change, we are free to change them, put them back on the shelf. They are what we read, they are not what we are. And he says, now imagine you're walking through the library. And as you're walking down the, 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 the rows and the shanks, you see a book. It's a leather-bound book. And in, in written in Boston gold on the, on the spine is the name of your family. And you pull out the book and you start reading and you see that it's old pages. And on each page is, the, is a heading with the name of the family of a different generation. And they're writing it to the next generation. And it's in different languages as it passes through. First, in, it's, it's in Spanish, and then it moves to Ladino, and then it moves to, moves to Yiddish. And each generation has pictures and illustrations and it's letters to the next generation of that family. And you keep on moving, and then it starts turning from it to, to English, and you start seeing your grandparents and your parents. And then there's a page which is blank, and on the top of the page is a heading, and it says your name. Right, Sachs asks, would you be able to put that book back in the library? Is that just a book of interest on gardening? And the argument, he says the following, he says, uh, 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 is, is as follows, in the top of the next page. According to the intellectual conventions of modernity, this should make no difference. There's nothing in the past that can bind you to the present. No history that can make a difference to who you are and who you are free to be. But this cannot be the whole truth. Were I to find myself holding such a book in my hands, my life would already have been changed. Seeing my name and the story of my forebears, I could not read it as if it were just one story among others. Instead, reading it would, become, would inevitably become, for me, a form of self-discovery. Once I knew it existed, I could not put the book back on the shelf and forget it because I would know, not now know that I am part of a long line of people who traveled towards a certain destination and whose journey remains unfinished, dependent on me to take it further. That's the notion of the letter and the scroll. That means to say that Judaism views us 
Not in terms of what we do, where we are, what language we speak, where we live, what neighbors we have, what interests we have. Those are not who we are. They're what we do. That's not identity. Judaism demands of us, the Torah demands of us, that we're part of a conversation of over a hundred generations passing on the same story to our children. And we are therefore part of a larger system, what came before us and what will come after us if we so choose. So therefore there is an element of autonomy to a certain degree. We are free to choose, and if we choose not to, we have ended the story of thousands of years and of hundreds of generations. We are part of that story, but we need to choose to be part of that story. It is not like any other idea in the West, which can be put back on the shelf. That's what Jewish identity is. This is the, the humble resolution that Rabbi Sachs points out. And just to, clo- to quote is such a great example of, of, of how he expresses this idea. One, one, one very interesting idea. Listen to this example. We have friendships, commitments, passions, and concerns that contribute to our personalities, but cannot substitute the core of identity. I may be a lawyer concerned about environment, an American citizen living in Seattle who loves the film of Steven Spielberg and the humor of Woody Allen, but these are merely facts about me. What I do, what I care about, and where I live, what I like. They are fall short of constituting who I am. They may change over time without without my ceasing to be me. The most fundamental answer to the question, who am I? The one that never changes involves a journey back through time into who my parents were and theirs and so far back as I can go. That is the story into which I was born. I may choose not to continue it, but I cannot deny deny it without in some way living it a lie. The history of my people is where my identity begins. That's what the Levin scholars. So you ask the question, and this is, this is the answer. That's our place in this, in this role. And this is a, a truth that if Emetz Hashem, our brothers and sisters, were to hear, perhaps they would also make the choice to be part of this. Thank you very much, Rabbi Emetz Hashem. We'll continue the story next, next, next time.